Hey, Kel. Hey, Sarah. I have to tell you, I have two new additions to my house. Two? We are insane. And we got littermates of these adorable chocolate Labradors. They're about 12 weeks old. They're adorable. But they like to get up and go out at 4 a.m. in the morning. Do you know wow. what I you know what I'm typically doing at 4 a.m. in the morning? Sleeping. Sleeping. So to say that my sleep patterns have been disrupted is a understatement. And I am really excited to have this conversation today because I want to understand how to fix it. <laughs> so how do I fix it? Get these dogs trained and fix my sleep pattern. So we have an old friend of the podcast here today. And I'm so excited. We have Dr. Crabtree. And I can't wait to talk to her about her favorite topic. Let's get into it. I am Sarah. And I'm Kelly. And this is The Unchosen Fork. And today we are talking all about the thing that I want to call a hobby of mine, and it's sleep. We have a dear friend of the podcast, Dr. Valerie Crabtree from St. Jude's, to talk about this. Dr. Valerie Crabtree is a full faculty member in the Department of Psychology and a Chief of Psychological Services at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. She holds a PhD in counseling psychology, and her specialty training is in pediatric behavioral sleep medicine with a completed postdoctoral fellowship and faculty position in the Division of Pediatric Sleep Medicine at the University of Louisville. Dr. Crabtree's research interests include sleep disturbances, fatigue, and daytime sleepiness in children undergoing active treatment for cancer, as well as in cancer survivors. Dr. Crabtree is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine and provides clinical services to children with cancer and hematological disorders, with a focus on directed interventions to improve sleep and fatigue in this population. She also has an interest in sleep and fatigue among medical trainees and has both published and presented on this topic across audiences. Dr. Crabtree and her co-author, Dr. Lisa Meltzer, published a book in 2015 entitled Pediatric Sleep Problems, A Clinician's Guide to Behavioral Interventions. Welcome, Dr. Crabtree. We are so excited to have you back. You did such a wonderful job talking about how to talk to children and illness. We just had to have you back to talk about your favorite topic, which is really sleep in general. <laughs> we are so excited to have you back. Well, I am so happy to be asked back. It's really nice to be with you all again. I am really excited for today. Sleep is something I do like to do, but I've been known in the past to give it up for certain things. And so I'm excited to kind of hear about that and what's going on in sleep research, as well as just how it helps our immune systems, people who are fighting chronic illnesses or cancer. I have lots of questions. Excellent. <laughs> a lot of times people are like, oh, I don't get my eight hours. I have to catch up on my sleep. What I would really like to know is that from a chronic illness standpoint, how does that impact you, the quality of the sleep that you're getting, or how to have that quality of sleep when maybe it's really difficult? That seems like such a huge topic. So where would you say that we should start the conversation? I think the best place to start the conversation is to really understand the value of sleep. I think as a society, we tend to devalue sleep and you hear people say things like, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, or I get by fine with just four hours of sleep per night. And the truth is that we really think of sleep as the third pillar of good health, which means if you're getting good nutrition, appropriate levels of physical activity and healthy sleep, that's your three-legged stool to really underline health. So when we're thinking about a person with a chronic illness who already is at risk for physical and psychological challenges during the day, it is as important to be getting healthy sleep as it is to be getting healthy nutrition and the right level of physical activity as recommended by a physician or physical therapist or someone who is managing that person's chronic illness. And you talk about the three stools and uh, the three stools, listen to me, the three legs of the stool. And I think it's really interesting because when I was diagnosed, they did talk to me about my nutrition and they did talk to me about my activity level. Nowhere did anybody mention sleep. It was just not something that was a conversation. They did talk about fatigue and they were like, oh, you'll probably have some fatigue, but that was it. Okay. <laughs> like, what do I do with that? Like, there's no there there in terms of like, okay, I fatigue. Like, what does that really mean? 
mean? What does that mean to recover from fatigue? What does that mean to combat fatigue? Or, you know, how much of that is related to the sleep that they get? That is a really interesting question. And I wish I had a really firm answer for you. Uh, The truth is that teasing apart fatigue and daytime sleepiness can be challenging. They are distinct entities. And I'm sure as a person who has experienced some fatigue, you understand the difference between my body is tired or I have exerted so much energy that I don't have energy to give to something else. My mind is tired. My brain is foggy. That's the fatigue feeling versus sleepiness, which is if I were to close my eyes, I would fall asleep pretty quickly. Sometimes you can be both fatigued and sleepy. It doesn't mean that they're not, you know, that they are mutually exclusive. It also is the case that if a person is not getting adequate sleep or not good quality sleep, they also will experience daytime fatigue. However, for a person with a chronic illness that is associated with fatigue, it may be the case that even getting adequate sleep, there is still some element of fatigue that happens during the day. Sometimes people, whether they're adults or children and sometimes healthcare providers have a difficult time teasing those apart. And I think colloquially, we use the word tired to mean fatigued and to mean sleepy. So it's really important as a person living with a chronic illness or taking care of someone with a chronic illness to get a little bit more refined or detailed in what the symptom actually is, because it will make a difference in terms of how it's managed. Fatigue is difficult to manage. And typically what we recommend is getting some physical activity with per the recommendations of the healthcare provider and given the ability of the person with the illness, as well as doing a really nice job of self-monitoring. So pacing yourself, knowing your limits, understanding where your energy reserves are, and targeting your energy towards the things that have the most meaning to you or that you absolutely have to get done and then resting in between to really pace that activity level. If the issue is a sleep problem that also might be leading to fatigue, then part of that is identifying what are some sleep health behaviors that we can focus on to help promote healthier sleep at night, as well as ruling out any potential for a sleep disorder that might be disrupting sleep. So that might be something like obstructive sleep apnea, REM sleep behavior, disorder, a parasomnia like sleepwalking, sleep talking. Some people who have seizure disorders might have those more associated with nighttime or during their sleep. So we would want to be sure that we're ruling out any other sleep disorder that could be contributing to some of these challenges as well. I guess I should take a step back because I made an assumption that, and it's wrong, that we know what good sleep actually is. I just realized that I do not. So Dr. Crabtree, what is actually healthy, good sleep? Good sleep is going to vary from person to person in terms of how much sleep people get. You hear you need about eight hours of sleep. Most adults need somewhere between seven and nine hours of sleep at night. Children need more. Teenagers need more. That isn't always the case in terms of what happens with teenagers, but they do need more. Do kids need more than teenagers or do teenagers need more than kids? Very young children need the most. And I think all of us know this when you have a toddler that you want them sleeping a lot at night, but also in the afternoon taking a nap as well. So infants and toddlers need a lot of sleep. Teenagers actually need a little bit more sleep than school-age children do. Very often that doesn't happen. And sometimes it's because of social media and devices. Sometimes it's because of demands, either a lot of homework or extracurricular activities. And many times, depending on where you live, it could be because schools start too early for teenagers to get adequate sleep. A piece of this is because within the adolescent period, there's a delay in the circadian rhythm. And the circadian rhythm is when our bodies need to be asleep and when they need to be awake. So for most healthy adults, we feel awake during the day and sleepy at night. Most adults typically are going to have be ready to go to sleep by 10 p.m. Older adults, it's a little bit earlier. Children, it's a little bit earlier. Teenagers have this delay that happens with the onset of puberty, and they often just physiologically cannot sleep until 11 o'clock at night. So if they have a very early school start time and they have to wake up at 5.30 in the morning, they have a sleep opportunity of six and a half hours, which is certainly not enough. 
when we think about healthy sleep, a piece of it is circadian rhythm. So sleeping at the time when our bodies need to be sleeping and being awake at the times when our bodies need to be awake. This can be a significant challenge for shift workers. So their bodies want them to be awake during the day when they need to be sleeping to be prepared for work. And then when they're working and they need to be alert, their bodies want them to be sleeping and this can create some difficulties. So sleeping when your body is ready to sleep, sleeping about seven to nine hours at night for an adult. Everyone's an individual. Some people need a little bit less. Some people need a little bit more. Almost no one only needs four hours of sleep per night, regardless of what people will say. Um, lies. They all spout lies. I know. <laughs> and it, what's interesting is that people are really not good at recognizing how sleepy they are. And there's some really fascinating studies that show people's sleepiness getting worse and worse day after day when they don't get enough sleep, but they just keep saying, I'm fine, <laughs> and just don't realize how significantly it's impacting them. What happens is that we habituate to what it feels like to be sleepy or be fatigued. And that's just how we feel. And that's why you'll hear most people say, oh, I'm tired all the time, which is offensive to a person who has a chronic illness and is truly fatigued a lot of the time. But that just means they're probably not getting enough sleep. So sleeping about the same amount every night at about the same time every night, being able to go to sleep readily within 20 to 30 minutes without the aid of a substance, sleeping through the night. We all have a few spontaneous awakenings through the night. That is normal. That is typical. They should not last generally longer than five to 10 minutes. And then waking at around the same time each morning, seven days a week without the use of an alarm. I know very few people who do this. Without the use of an alarm. Yes. I'm so, really checking into those boxes. <laughs> the only time that happens is when I'm on vacation at the beach and the house becomes very sunny as soon as the sun comes up and yes. I wake up. That is the only time I wake up without an alarm. Mm -hmm. Yes. If you do need to use an alarm, if you're snoozing, if you're sleeping through your alarm, if you have to set three alarms, if you're my son and you're looking for the atomic alarm to take to college with you, that's an indicator that you are probably not getting either enough sleep or not good quality sleep. And you should wake up in the morning feeling relatively refreshed within about half an hour of waking up. So few people bounce out of bed and feel totally awake. There's a period of time to feel more alert. But if you've noticed that you're groggy throughout the day, if you really have to have those cups of coffee to get yourself moving, that's an indication of not getting healthy sleep. I want to talk about the coffee thing for a bit because my understanding, and you can let me know, and I know you're not an expert on coffee, but my understanding is that you're really just masking the tiredness. Like you're short-circuiting that, that signal in your head that's saying that you're tired when you drink coffee. That's what the caffeine does. Is that true? I mean, I don't know. It, I should have the caveat that I am not a caffeine expert. I will say that caffeine does increase attention and alertness for a short period of time. So it's not a good long-term solution, but it can if you need to really focus to take a test or to drive through traffic or something like that, that's okay. And I usually will recommend it for medical residents who are on call overnight and they need to be alert, that that is a way to increase alertness, but it is short-term and nothing takes the place of adequate sleep except for sleep. I've found that coffee for me is more ritualistic. Just being able to have that cup in the morning as I'm getting ready or as I'm driving to work, even the mornings that I wake up and I exercise first thing. So then I feel more awake as I'm driving to work. I still want that cup of coffee, even though I don't really need that cup of coffee per se. So I, I found it to be a lot more ritualistic and just liking it in the morning and liking it being a part of my morning. That may not be how I started drinking coffee, but it is certainly how it's become you know, what I have every day. And I'm one of those people, I do not bounce out of bed and I am not a very happy person in the morning. You have to give me half an hour. My husband is up. He likes to clap and make loud noises in the morning. And this morning I was like, let's not clap in the morning. It's just not a nice way to wake Clapping. up. <laughs> Clapping in the morning. 
I will say I'm the opposite, Kelly. If I'm up, I'm up. Like I'm raring to go, but it's not a positive thing. It's like, who died? (laughs) I wake up and I'm five alarm fire is going on. I'm up, but I cannot go back to sleep for the life of me. If I wake up, whether it's like I said, 4 a.m. in the morning with these new puppies or it's nine o'clock in the morning, I'm up for the day. I can't go back to sleep until much later in the day. Now naps, different conversation, but I am up. There's no returning to sleep. So it's really interesting, Dr. Crabtree, when you're talking about the waking up up, you know, during the night, because I have found that once or twice since I've been diagnosed, I'll wake up. Well, it's 2 a.m. and I'm up, you know, I'm just up. I'm up. Hello. I'm up. And that's really frustrating. Yeah. So when you're talking about good sleep habits, making sure that you're going to bed at the same time, making sure you're waking up at the same time, in terms of chronic illness, how does sleep impact the wellness of people that are experiencing whatever they're experiencing from an illness standpoint? Because sleep is so important for both physical and mental health, it really plays a lot into management of chronic illness. It is very common for people with chronic illness to have depression symptoms, to have anxiety symptoms symptoms, getting insufficient sleep or poor quality sleep will worsen those. We also know that people who get poor sleep are more at risk of developing depression over the long term. So even if they aren't coinciding a bad night of sleep, I feel depressed the next day. Over the course of time, we really do see that incidence of depression increasing. Also, poor sleep impacts attention and decision-making and creativity. So for people with chronic illness who are needing to remember to take medications to manage their illness, uh, who already might be having some brain fog or some fatigue, that will typically worsen if they're not getting adequate sleep. And then from a physical health standpoint, good quality sleep is important for cardiovascular functioning. It's important for gastrointestinal functioning. It's important for cognitive functioning. We know that poor sleep is actually a risk factor for developing Alzheimer's or dementia over time. It helps manage good blood pressure. So it's really important for all aspects of health. Not getting enough sleep or getting poor quality sleep also increases risk for infection and lowers immune functioning. And one of the most interesting studies, which I will never understand how they got anyone to agree to participate in this, but they just put rhinovirus or the common cold virus in people's noses, and then they randomized them to sleep eight hours a night or to sleep six hours a night for the next, I think it was five or seven nights. And the people who only slept six hours per night were significantly more likely to develop symptoms of the cold than people who were sleeping eight hours per night, even though they were directly exposed to the same virus. So it's fascinating how much sleep can really affect immune function as well as promotes tissue repair. So if someone has had a surgery, then getting adequate sleep is going to help with healing over time. So I didn't want to get too in the weeds with this, but when I was reading for our bite size, I read about the immune system and all of the different immune mediators that actually are stimulated in our bodies by sleep. And it was so interesting. I mean, it's all the big ones like tumor necrosis factor and all of those big things. And so it's really neat to hear you talk about that. And I had not read that study, which is very fascinating. And as I have a cold coming on, I will be sleeping 10 hours tonight. Thank you. You're welcome. Welcome. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe they got people to be like, here, it's the common cold. Here you go. That's crazy. Right. <laughs> oh, it was pre-COVID. I'm quite sure. It was definitely <laughs> pre-COVID. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. So I do want to walk us back a little bit because we talked about quantity and amount of sleep. But what we really haven't talked about in quality of sleep is really about disruptive sleep and how that doesn't lead to quality sleep, right? It's not just amount. And also, I'm interested to hear how now during the day can affect sleep because you are getting more sleep, but then do you go into deep enough sleep, I guess, is one of my questions. Yes. So with quality of sleep, you're right that having anything that disrupts sleep throughout the night will impact how rested the person feels when they wake in the morning. So whether it's puppies or children or a bed partner or anxiety, that things that are leading to sleep disruption can really impact 
impact the daytime experience of a person. And certainly something that is chronically disrupting sleep. If you can adjust your environment for that to not be disrupting your sleep, you typically are going to feel better the next day. That can also be said for sleep disorders. So for people with obstructive sleep apnea, the snoring, the reduced oxygenation, the obstructions that happen in the upper airway will cause very brief arousals all night long. And they might not even feel like they were awakened, but it's enough to interrupt the brain from going into the deepest stages of sleep that it needs to be in. And then people have sleepiness during the day. And as I mentioned earlier, how poor we are as humans at recognizing our level of sleepiness. One of the most common things we see in people who are diagnosed and treated for obstructive sleep apnea is that once they're treated, they will almost always say, I had no idea how sleepy I was until I was treated. And now I feel like a whole different person during the day. And that's a very common experience. So the quality of sleep is very important as well. You had asked about naps. So tell me about naps. So when we went to my husband's oncologist in the very beginning, she said not to nap after it was either 4 p.m. or 4.30 p.m. because she said that he then wouldn't be able to get in that deep restorative sleep. So tell me a little bit about that. It is true. If you're going to nap, there are typically peak times to be able to do that. Usually early to mid-afternoon is when your body is the most ready to take a nap. We have a dip in our alertness according to our circadian rhythm. And so we can take advantage of that after lunchtime and have a restorative nap. Typically, we're going to recommend if you're napping during the day that it's very brief, so 20 to 30 minutes. The reason for that is that you can feel rejuvenated from that, but you haven't started to enter all of the stages of sleep that you need. So it could be quick. You haven't gone into deep sleep and you can wake up feeling refreshed. If you have time to sleep for two hours, that's okay as well because you should have completed a full sleep cycle by sleeping two hours and you can wake up feeling refreshed. But anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half is sort of a danger zone that you can wake up feeling worse or groggy or have what's called sleep inertia, which is when you wake up and just feel like you just can't get moving. And that's because of the deeper stages of sleep being interrupted by waking up. I would agree with your husband's oncologist that if it's later than about 4 p.m., then it will typically delay sleep onset at bedtime. So you want to be making sure that the naps are not too late because it can really make it difficult to sleep at night if you just slept an hour and now four hours later, you're trying to turn around and go to sleep again. Our bodies just typically need more time than that between when we sleep. As adults, young children, it's different. But for adults, that's typically the case. I was really worried you were going to take my nap away. I'm a 1.30 to 2.30 napper. That's my sweet spot. Thank you. Because... like my one thing. I can't eat anything anymore. I can sleep though. (laughs) I would say the caveat to that is if you're a person who has insomnia and you have difficulty either falling asleep or staying asleep when you go to bed, sometimes we will recommend giving up naps so that you can build up the sleep pressure to be able to sleep at night. But if you're sleeping okay at night, there is nothing wrong with taking a brief nap. That is wonderful to hear. What I'm interested in, because I don't understand this stuff and I'm sure Kelly does, but what actually happens when you go to sleep? Because you were talking about deep sleep. You know, you hear kind of, oh, you're, I was in a deep sleep. But what does that really mean, like from a biological perspective? So there are different stages of sleep, lighter stages of sleep. And we see this if we bring someone into a sleep clinic and we have all of the EEG leads on them and we have sensors on their eyes and we have sensors on their abdomen and their chest and their chin. And we can see how what changes in terms of their EEG patterns in their brain, what changes in terms of their muscle movements, and that gives us the indication of what stages they're in. So lighter stages of sleep tend to be less restorative. That is not dream sleep. It's just sort of floating into sleep. And that's typically where we start our night. Deeper sleep, if we're looking at an EEG, is going to be these big, slow waves. That means your brain is kind of slowing down. We see more consolidation of memory for people who are going into deep 
deep sleep. So it really does help our brains kind of consolidate what we've done during the day. And then there's REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement. And so we see the brains moving quickly, the eyes are moving really quickly, but the muscles are frozen. And that's what keeps us from acting out our dreams, which is different than your puppies, right? When you see them dreaming, they're running in their sleep and humans don't do that. Oh, that's so cool. So which one is the, so which one's a dream state? Is the REM, REM is Mm -hmm. the, the REM is the dream sleep and you just dream really weird things like everything's okay because I have the wooden spoon, right? That's (laughs) (laughs) like that kind of thing. Okay. Everybody dreams, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some people remember their dreams better than others, if I understand it, right? My question about that is, you know, how do you set yourself up for success to get to those stages if they are the restorative stages, the deep and the the REM sleep? Getting enough sleep is really important. So one thing that we will see is something called REM rebound, which means if you have not been getting enough sleep over a period of several nights and then you sleep enough, you might notice you have a lot of dreams. And that's because your brain is really trying to kind of catch up on that REM sleep that you lost out on. Sleeping at night as opposed to sleeping during the day is really important. So that slow wave sleep tends to be more so concentrated in the beginning of the night when you sleep. So if you stay up super late from a circadian perspective, you might be missing out on some of that slow wave sleep window. REM sleep tends to happen more frequently later in the night. And so that's why when people have, you know, if you have a child that nightmares are more often going to happen at two o'clock in the morning, but a child who sleepwalks is going to do that because that's happening during slow wave sleep more often at 11 p.m. or 10 p.m. And that's how we monitor kind of when their sleep stages are happening. We go through cycles. So throughout the night, you typically are going to have four sleep cycles where you will go through all of those stages with each cycle. But at the beginning of the night, the slow, deep sleep is more concentrated. Later in the night, the REM sleep is more concentrated. For those people, like you said, sometimes they do have a third shift or something like that. And they they have to like switch the day for the night. Do things like blackout curtains or sleep lights help in that? Or are they just things we've been marketed? No, those are helpful for people that work third shift. Having a way to block the light when you're sleeping during the day can be very important. Humans are very sensitive to light in terms of its impact on circadian rhythm and alertness. So any light peeking in when you're a human and you should be awake during the day is just sending messages to your brain to be awake. So blackout curtains while sleeping can be very helpful. Blue light blocking glasses on the drive home in the morning can be very helpful because again, when the sun comes up and the blue light is what really sets our alertness and tells us it's time to be awake is going against the body's need to sleep. So having those blue light blocking glasses on the drive home, blackout shades, phones turned off, people not bothering you during the day while you're sleeping, and then having those bright lights sometimes at the workplace, especially between 2 and 5 a.m. when it is the most risky time for falling asleep, can also help promote alertness while they're needing to work. I would have never thought of the blue light glasses driving home. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And all those things will work for people as well that don't have third shift or whatever. Like if you're having trouble sleeping at the regular times, the blackout curtains and everything work for you as well. Yes. I would say the one thing you would want is access to dawn so that you know as the sun is coming up in the morning, whether it's you live in an area where you can have access to natural sunlight or whether you need to use a light therapy device, a bright light device. But having that morning exposure to light is very important for sleep and circadian health. Now, I do want to ask you a question because this does flow into the teenage as well as the adult about phones. I get yelled at all the time that I look at my phone too late in the evening, which maybe, maybe I do, maybe I don't. I get, I'm going to ask Dr. Crabtree about <laughs> whether I do or I don't. When you're talking about falling asleep, we are all addicted to our phones in that little, you know, whatever. What is realistic in terms of sleep hygiene and, and making sure that you're presenting yourself in the best possible way to get a good night's sleep? In general, we would recommend that people not be looking at their phones within the last half hour before bedtime. And there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it has to do with how stimulating it is. So if you're on your phone playing a game, that's going to make it difficult to 
disengage and go to sleep. If you're reading emails and someone's getting on your nerves, then that's going to get you anxious and frustrated before you're trying to go to sleep. If you're watching a TV show, anything like that, if you're on social media, which can be just a bottomless pit, it's stimulating and pulling at you to stay awake and stay engaged in that content. And so if you have a rule for yourself to just put it away, then it allows you an opportunity for your brain and your body to gradually become more relaxed and gradually more ready for going to sleep and then having a clear routine. So Kelly, you were mentioning the importance of coffee in the morning as just a routine and just part of your day and ritualistic. You can do the same thing at bedtime with sleep promoting activities and a phone is not a sleep promoting activity unless you're <laughs> unless you're listening to, you know, calming sounds and that's something that's helpful to you. But being able to say every night, 30 minutes before I go to bed, I'm going to put the phone on the charger. I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to brush my teeth and get in bed and read one chapter of a book. And then I go to sleep. And if you do the same thing every night, it's very similar to having a bedtime routine for a child. You're readying yourself for sleep. It's sending your body and your brain the cues that we're winding down from the day and moving into time to sleep now. I just wanted to ask about the reading because you did say read a chapter. I'm assuming you mean a physical book as opposed to like a Kindle. You're saying that's not as stimulating as, let's say, the lights from a phone or Kindle. Right. And I would say, so a Kindle is actually not bad because it's pretty dark. It's not, you know, you're not getting this glaring bright light. So if you prefer to read from a Kindle, I don't think that's a problem. There has been some more recent evidence that the lights emitted from the phones might not be as impactful to the circadian rhythm as was initially believed. Michael Gratisar is a sleep researcher who's done a lot of work looking at impact of tablets and phones on sleep onset. And it does not seem to shift the circadian rhythm like people thought at one point. In my mind, I think it's the content and the activity on the phone that makes it more difficult to then go to sleep. So let me ask you this. My routine at night, I do put my phone away, but I do watch TV. We turn all the lights off and watch TV. And that's like my downtime before I go to bed. I have noticed that if I watch something suspenseful, I don't go to sleep as well. And so I try to stay away from that kind of television now before bed. Is the blue light from the TV also something that could impact my sleep quality? I think that's unlikely. When the TV can impact your sleep quality, is if you leave it on all night long. So you're having this constant shift in the light. Even if you're not looking at it, even if you turn the volume down, the lights in your bedroom are changing and changing. And with sleep, you want the environment to be really consistent the whole night. So if you have a nightlight, it's the same nightlight all night long. If you have a white noise machine, it's the same noise all night long. But if it's just something that you're watching before you go to sleep, you know that suspense isn't the way to go. So you want to watch a comedy or something else that isn't as stimulating to your brain and you don't have any trouble falling asleep afterwards, I wouldn't be concerned about it. I can't watch suspenseful shows at all, Kelly. It just makes me agitated. They're crossed off my list. My husband's like, but this is a great show. I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) Take a cup over to our house. (laughs) (laughs) Just not at bedtime. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. No, I felt during COVID being someone who worked in a hospital, I felt like I really had to take stock at my sleep regimen because it was just incredibly stressful and something that really took a hit for me was my sleep. And then I went the other direction, which is going to go to my question to you is I felt like I was almost sleeping too much, especially on the weekends. So tell me, is it a possibility to sleep too much? The way that our bodies work is that we sleep as much as our bodies need. So it's not really likely that you would be sleeping more than what your sleep need is. A lot of people sleep less than what their sleep need is, but it's very difficult and probably physiologically impossible to sleep more than what you need. What I would say is that having excessive need for sleep can be an indication of a sleep disorder. And so if you find that you're sleeping nine hours a night during the week, and then on the weekends, you're sleeping 11 or 12 hours and still needing a nap, that is probably something to talk with your primary care clinician about because it can be an indicator that you need a sleep evaluation. 
So waking up and being like, oh, I don't really want to get out of bed. Let me fall back asleep. That's really my body saying Mm -hmm. you need the sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say too, I mean, you mentioned COVID was such a stressful time for people working in hospitals. We also see increased need for sleep associated with feeling depressed. And so for people who may have depression, needing to sleep more might be one of the symptoms that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned about sleep disorders, you know, maybe sleeping too much might be an indication what are some other things that people should look for that they wouldn't necessarily think of that are sleep disorder indicators? For me, like thinking, does everybody that snore need to get a sleep study? Everyone who snores should talk with their physician about it because not every person who snores has obstructive sleep apnea, but it is certainly one of the hallmark signs of it. And one of the challenges with sleep apnea is that a lot of the symptoms are not noticed by the person who has them, but they're noticed by the person who sleeps with them. So if you have a bed partner or your bed partner tells you there's a lot of snoring, it's very loud, it's very common, it's typical to snore if you're congested, not during a period of illness, but during a period of being well, snoring frequently, snoring loudly, breathing pauses. So if you notice that the person you share a bed with just stops breathing and you're listening to see how much longer is it going to be before they start breathing again, and that's happening commonly, they should be referred probably for an evaluation sweating a good deal during sleep. Sometimes for women, that is a perimenopausal symptom, but it can also be a sign of sleep apnea. So certainly someone who snores or has breathing pauses and sweats a lot during sleep, that should be evaluated. Waking up with a sore throat or a really super dry mouth, all of those can be indications. For people who have restless legs, there is a similar disorder that is that co-occurs very frequently called periodic limb movement disorder. So So if, again, a bed partner is noticing that you're kicking a lot during your sleep or kicking in a rhythmic way, if you always wake up and your covers are twisted in knots, and little kids do that, but for adults, that can be an indication of a sleep disorder. So you're saying if they look like the puppies? (laughs) Yes, moving their legs when they're sleeping. Yeah. You know, and I guess my question would be with that, how do you recognize that in kids? Because maybe you're not, some people co-sleep with their kids, but there's a lot of people that don't. So how do you recognize that maybe your kid needs extra support there? With children, you know, if they're having difficulty falling asleep, if they're having difficulty staying asleep, if they're waking up too early in the morning, those are all indications that you might need some additional help. Kids that have sleep apnea times will say, can you hear them snoring through a closed door? So because most children go to sleep before their parents, that can be one of the signs is that parents will hear the child snoring even when the door is closed. Many times it's because people go on a family vacation and they're all staying in a hotel room together or all visiting family and in one room and then they hear it, which they might not have in their typical sleep environment. So it's always important to kind of stay attuned to that. And then kids who have recurrent nightmares oftentimes will need some additional support too. What if they talk in their sleep? I know people that talk in their sleep might be little people that I have birthed, you know. It's very common in young children. Most of the time they will outgrow it and it tends to be a pretty benign symptom. So unless you're seeing anything really concerning associated with it, it's usually fine. I talked in my sleep so much as a child and teenager that my mom sometimes would think I was on the phone and come into my room to get on to me. And I would just be like I was carrying on a conversation and pausing for the other person to talk and then talking more. And I eventually outgrew it, but probably not until I was a young adult, but it's very common in kids. So I want to talk a little bit about memory because you mentioned earlier that when you go to sleep in one of the sleep stages, it was the second one that you mentioned that your memories, that's where things are kind of cemented into memory. So tell me a little bit about what happens with memory if you're not getting adequate sleep or if you're just cutting yourself short, you know, you're only doing five hours every day and and things like that. What, What is the research set about? So it's a little bit of a double-edged sword is what happens. So for memory, we need to be able to pay attention in the first place. We need to take in the information and bring it into short-term memory, and it needs to be encoded there, and then it needs to transfer to long-term memory if we're going to be able to access it and retrieve it in the future. When you are not getting enough sleep, 
It affects attention. So sometimes the memory issues are that the attention was impacted, so you never brought it in to short-term memory in the first place. But we also know that to commit information from short-term to long-term memory, we need to have adequate sleep as well. So there have been some really fascinating studies of presenting new information to people, letting them rehearse it and stay awake and get tested, or letting them rehearse it, go to sleep and get tested. And the groups that go to sleep always do better. So when we're talking with high school students and college students about studying, there's really good evidence that staying awake all night to cram is probably less effective than, well, you should study over a long period of time because that's how memory works also. But if you want to be successful from a sleep standpoint, studying a good amount of time, sleeping enough, and then taking your test is typically going to promote better performance. The other really fascinating thing that happens in the brain, and this is a more newly recognized system in the body is something called the glymphatic system, which means that while we're sleeping, we actually are cleaning our brains. So the toxins in the brain are getting washed out through this glymphatic system, but only during deep sleep. And so if people are not getting adequate sleep or not getting good quality sleep, the toxins are building up in the brain. It's one of the theories for how poor sleep over a lifetime might increase risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disorder is because of this buildup of toxins that aren't able to be properly flushed from the cerebrospinal fluid during sleep. That is so cool. That is super cool because it's one of those things, you know, for so long, people have been, how do I protect myself, my brain in the future? And they're like, eat spinach. And this is actually something that is scientifically proven that you can do now and after now to protect your brain and your cognitive function in the future. And that's that's just super cool. I love it. It's like cleaning out the cobwebs that everybody talks about, right? It it really It actually does it. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a lot more research to be done. You know, we certainly don't have big (laughs) studies of people and looked at their glymphatic system and said, like, this is the person who's going to have dementia. But it's a good indicator that there really is a positive benefit to the way in which our brains function based on healthy sleep. So if you're not getting, or if you're only getting, say, five to six hours of sleep a night, then you're probably not getting into that deep, deep sleep that is allowing for those cobwebs to be cleaned. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you're probably going into it some, but you're not getting enough and enough concentrated time in those sleep stages to really fully benefit from it. So I was reading of that, just as you said, that it, it is that over time, it can become cumulative if you're only getting five to six hours of sleep, that your memory and the ability to attend deteriorates quite a bit and you may not even recognize it. Right. Is that accurate? Yes. And you know, the other piece that happens too that I haven't mentioned as much is emotion regulation. I think all of us know if we didn't get enough sleep last night, we might be short-tempered or irritable. We're we're snapping at people, but that also happens over the long term. So if someone is chronically sleep-deprived, it is much more difficult to regulate emotions, to remain calm, to stop and pause before responding, and that has an impact on our home and our work life for sure, as well as our mental health. I got you covered in the bite size. Don't worry. I can't wait to hear it. I do have one more question. Some people have trouble falling asleep. Some people have trouble staying asleep. It might be because of a sleep disorder. It might be because of this phase of life that they're in. It might be because they have a chronic illness like me. Do you recommend using the sleep aids that are available just to do what you need to do to get sleep? Is there something that you are like, if you can't fall asleep, maybe you shouldn't be asleep or something like that? You know What the literature and research shows us is that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is actually superior to medications. And there have been large scale trials that show that. And so the first line of treatment for insomnia, whether it's related to a chronic illness or not, is utilizing these cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia tools and strategies. There are some online programs. There are some that are available by prescription, actually, so that healthcare provider is managing the person while they're also going through this online program. Um, But there are also other ways to do apps or looking on the web for suggestions. But in general, the rules are to only use your bed for sleep and sex and also not watching TV or scrolling on your phone 
or stressing out about things to try to maintain a similar sleep schedule seven nights a week. So not shifting on non-work or non-school days that if you are not asleep within about half an hour of going to bed, you should get out of bed and do something else that is under dim lighting and boring and that isn't an electronic device and to only return to bed when you feel sleepy. Like if I closed my eyes, I would fall asleep and to repeat the same thing in the middle of the night. So if I wake up and I haven't fallen back asleep in half an hour, I'm going to get out of bed, do something boring. Some people with insomnia need to not have a clock around them because they do the clock watch countdown. Now I only have six hours to sleep. Now I only have five hours to sleep. Now I only have four hours to sleep. And their thoughts can really interfere with being able to go to sleep. There are some great ways to manage thoughts. So having anxious thoughts or worried thoughts or thoughts about how frustrated you are with your sleep can interfere with sleep as well. So there's lots of good strategies from a cognitive perspective. Think about how we think and have thoughts that are a little bit more conducive to sleep. And then also the things like having a cool, dark room, exercising every day, getting exposed to light in the morning, eating healthily, and not engaging in these super stimulating activities right before bed. So talk to me a little bit about alcohol Mm -hmm. and how can that glass of wine at dinner affect my sleep? See, I'm a pediatric person, so I always forget to bring up the alcohol. So with alcohol, some people notice that it will help them fall asleep really quickly, but it typically interferes with the quality of sleep. So if we look at people's EEGs while they're sleeping, they have consumed alcohol. It can impact how well they go through all of their sleep cycles. Typically, one glass at dinner should not have a significant impact, but drinking right before bed or having multiple alcoholic beverages can have an impact. You know, I would say to monitor yourself. So for some people watching something suspenseful right before bed is fine. And for you, it's not. And the same thing for some people having a glass of wine doesn't have any effect on their sleep. And someone else might notice, oh, it always makes it hard for me. You know, I always wake up at two in the morning if I've had alcohol at night. That's like me and coffee. If I have a cup of coffee after, I want to say 9am, I'm completely up 11 midnight. You know, it's crazy. I'm just like, it's not worth it. So I and do see, see you. Yeah, you must be very sensitive to it. Typically, yeah. we'll, we will suggest no coffee past noon or you know early afternoon, but some people are more sensitive. So it's important, especially for people who have chronic illness, it's very important to stay attuned to your own body and how you react and respond to things in your environment to know how to best regulate yourself. Well, and I think it changes too with age. I noticed I used to be able to have an afternoon cup of coffee and it would not affect me at all. I can't have anything afternoon at this point. It's my one cup a day in the morning and that's it. Yeah, and it is. I mean, our bodies change a lot as we age, unfortunately. Ain't that the truth. I do want to say that chronic illness, a lot of that is tied into chronic pain. So I think that sometimes sleep is hard to come by just because you're sitting in pain, right? When that occurs, what is the best recommendation that you have when chronic pain is actually the hindrance of getting good quality sleep? Yes. So I think, and you're right, and I work with a lot of adolescents and young adults who have this experience as well. I think one piece of it is following every bit of physical activity recommendation that you have. So if you have a physical therapist who's working with you, that you really are doing the exercises that they prescribe, you're doing them as they prescribe them, you figure out the best time of day to do them to help promote sleep. Some people say, if I do this first thing in the morning, I get through my day better and I'm more ready for sleep. Some people say that exercises help me feel more tired. So I like to do them in the evening. So monitoring for that, making sure you're talking openly with your healthcare provider about your pain management so that you're having your pain managed as well as possible. And that may be medications. It may be non-medication ways of managing pain. So doing things like relaxation and meditation and mindfulness and warm baths and whatever other types of additional pain management strategies are recommended that work for you. I I mentioned you should only use your bed for sleep and sex. And so what that means is if you are in pain and you need to be resting, that should during the day, ideally that would happen somewhere outside of your bed. So lying on the couch or sitting on a recliner or somewhere that is separate from the bed so that you're really training yourself that this bed is for sleeping at night. 
period. That's so interesting. I wouldn't have even thought about that is that you're training yourself to not experience pain in that place. Oh Mm -hmm. my gosh, that's that makes so much sense. All right, Dr. Crabtree, is there anything we haven't covered that you would like us to know about sleep, chronic illness, and sleep hygiene? Well, I could talk on and on, but you probably don't want a two-hour podcast. Um, (laughs) I would say that promoting healthy sleep in children, I think, is really important that we establish these health patterns early in life that we carry with us as we age. And so as parents, whether we have chronic illness or a child has chronic illness, being able to promote healthy sleep, model healthy sleep, just like modeling healthy nutrition and healthy activity is so critical and helping our children understand that it's not lazy to sleep. It's not, you know, that you're shirking other responsibilities if you're sleeping, that this is as critical and element of your health as eating nutritious foods and getting physical activity during the day. So I think we need to be promoting that in our children now. And maybe over time, we will lose a little bit of our societal lack of regard for the importance of sleep. I'm so glad you mentioned the shirking of responsibility and that feeling because that is something I also read about is just kind of the way our society is feeling like you have to go, 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 and you get a feather in your cap for working this long period of time. And, you know, what you're really doing is putting yourself at risk for poor sleep and poor health and that we really need to recognize that this is a really important part of all of our lives that we need to make time for. Absolutely. And I think the other piece that I didn't mention and that reminded me is the risk of drowsy driving and that because we as a society devalue sleep, there is not the same stigma of driving while drowsy that there is as driving while intoxicated. But if we look at people's reaction times, they're the same. Driving when you have not had sufficient sleep is a significant safety risk to you and to everyone around you. And so I think it's really important to think about not just how it affects us as individuals, but how it affects everyone around us as well. That is so critical because you do hear about people that get into accidents and I wasn't drunk. Oh, but I had three hours of sleep. That's something that you're absolutely right as we as society need to escalate that up to. That's not safe. I mean, how do you judge for that, right? Yeah. From from a standpoint, but but in the same time, like if you could put that social stigma on it, then maybe it is like, oh, you know what? Like you're really tired. Let me drive, right? Right. Or something like that. So I love that. And I think it's so important that we highlight that. So well Kelly You have teased us with the bite size for long enough. What do you got for us? Bite Bite size. All right. So I have a bite size and it is regarding a study on participants' mood was observed after they were confronted with a high and a low performance demands following varying degrees of sleep deprivation. And what they found is that for the people who were sleep deprived, They responded to low stressors in much the same way that the people without sleep deprivation tended to respond to high stressors. What they said here was that we tend to become much more sensitive emotionally and socially when we're sleep deprived. So that went right along with what Dr. Crabtree was talking about. I can totally believe that because if I don't get a good night's sleep, oh my God, the littlest thing can set me off because I'm I'm a grouchy person in general. So if I don't get enough sleep and something happens, I'm like, well, there goes the day. Look at that. Why did you do that? Right. It's a big tumbleweed. And if I get enough sleep, I'm a lovely person. I'm like sunshine. in a Well, I had to remind myself of this this morning because you know that clapping I told you my husband was doing because he's like, let's go. Let's get the day started. Well, I think I put too much pressure on myself last night knowing that we had this recording today and I was like, I have to get enough sleep and I couldn't fall asleep. So I ended up (laughs) leaving our bed and going to the couch to sleep. I just did not sleep well. So this morning, the clapping, I was, it was, it felt like a high stressor to me and it really normally doesn't bother me at all. It would bother me me a little bit. It it would bother me. Anybody coming at me with like like a double clap right in the morning. I'm like, dude, save it. Save it for noon. Save it for noon. (laughs) I can definitely see that, that people's moods are impacted by that. You know, it just makes sense. One of those things, I'm so glad we have the research now, but hopefully common sense rules there. And, you know, the more sleep you get, the better cognitively you're going to do, the better physically you're going to do. You know, there's a reason why we have idea that you should get good quality sleep. So Dr. Crabtree, thank you so much for being here with us again. 
we totally appreciate you dispelling all of your knowledge on us today because I feel like I know so much more <laughs> than I did. I going to say thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And Kelly, my dear, thank you so much for being the lovely co-host that you are. And to our listeners, we hope that you get a quality and good night's sleep and don't drive drowsy. We are on all the social medias. And this has been The Unchosen Fork. 